Are you curious, smart, think outside the box, and consider yourself an innovator? A high achiever who wants to explore more, know more, and be more? Are you someone who gets bored with fluff and wants to get to the real truth fast, minus the bull? Then this is the podcast for you. My guests are on the leading edge of their industries, and together we talk about topics as diverse as tech, self-care, relationships, business, society and culture, sex, and more, with the aim to educate, inform, inspire, and of course, entertain. Welcome to Nothing Off Limits. I'm your host, Michelle Ann Owens. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Nothing Off Limits. Today, my guest is Megan Gorman. She is the founding partner of Checkers Financial Management, a boutique high net worth tax and financial planning firm. Checkers makes tax strategy the cornerstone of the financial planning process, which I might add is unusual in the industry, along with having a female founder. In many cases, Checkers clients have come to the firm because of its reputation for strategy and for premier client service. Now, prior to founding Checkers, Megan worked at Goldman Sachs and BNY Mellon Wealth Management, where she provided financial planning services to high net worth families and also served in a fiduciary capacity on large family trusts. Hopefully someday I'll be able to have her manage my money too. (laughs) Megan's expertise has seen her quoted in publications from the Wall Street Journal to the Washington Post to CNN Money. And when we first spoke offline, she mentioned that she knows personally that the Rolling Stones are very good tax planners. So when she told me that, I knew she'd be a great guest for Nothing Off Limits. For more information about Checkers, go to checkersfinancial.com, which is spelled C-H-E-Q-U-E-R-S. And definitely check out her blog, which has some really cool articles and makes the topic of money really relatable and relevant, thewealthintersection.com. Welcome, Megan. Thank you, Michelle. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. I'm excited. You know, the wonderful Ben Lasky referred you to me, and I just adore him. He is great. And what he is able to do in mixing music and the law and and like you covered in your podcast with him, he just has a very unique talent at sort of finding the synergies between those two areas. Totally. Yeah. He's actually a great guy. He is. And I'm so glad that he connected us because I think that you're equally as talented and unique. So I want to dive in and have you share your personal story. How did you get into working with money? So how I actually got into money was was in a very roundabout manner. And I think there's two sort of key stories in understanding how I got into money and how I do what I do with clients. And the first really was when I was about six years old. And, and I come from a family of readers. Uh, you know, we used to joke as kids that my dad hated to buy us toys, but if we wanted books, he would spend any amount of money to buy us books. <laughs> and so as a kid, I used to really be drawn to books that were biographies, and in particular, biographies about the president. Mm. And I used to go to our elementary school library and go in and take out the books on Lincoln and, and Washington and Jefferson and just be a voracious reader about them. And, and that theme has continued into my, my adult life. I, I have a great deal of interest and passion and, and reading about people's lives and what drives them to do what they do. Yeah. Maybe you'll be a future female president, Megan. 
Uh, I'd love that, but I don't know. I've, I've looked at the salary. It doesn't pay that well. Oh, right. <laughs> so. That's right. The wealth side of things isn't there. And you'll get, exactly. you'll get you significant think about the money. Yeah, and you'll get significantly more gray. <laughs> that is gonna, very true. Yeah. Although I will tell you, as the founder of a business, you get very gray when you start your own business. So. Yes. Yeah. Either way. But I think the thing is, you know, I had that foundation of really being interested in people and what motivated them. And so then... When I was in law school, I had to take tax. It was a requirement. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, God, why do I have to take this class? And the first couple of classes, as I was reading the cases and starting to understand, you know, the points of law that were being emphasized, it just clicked with me. And, and what most people don't realize is tax is puzzles. So, you know, it was really about taking certain people's situations and applying the tax puzzle to it to get them to a certain outcome. And so what I found with those two pieces of my background is that they, they came together as I built a career. And as I started to work with clients and be an advocate for them, what I realized was as much as the numbers part of this is fascinating and the puzzles and the tax that really play in, what I was also really drawn to was the psychology of it all. What motivated people to, to behave in the manners in which they did? Mm. And I think what, what, what I find in working with people with wealth is that in the big picture of things, you can read a book, you can read a blog, you can read anything to understand the basic rules of finance. But when it comes down to it, it's about really controlling your emotion and understanding who you are emotionally in relating to money. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a huge point because we had mentioned in a previous podcast that, you know, we're all kind of born with a blueprint and we're kind of taught how to feel about money by our family and by the environment that we're in growing up. And then I went to your blog and I saw your entry about hypnotism when it comes to money. So I would love for you to dive more into this psychological aspect because I think a lot of people out there listening will very much relate to the fact that it's kind of a headache to think about tax planning or dealing with money in general. It's, it's uh, very scary for a lot of people. It, it's completely scary. And I think, you know, discovering ways to help people manage their anxiety with money is key. So going back to what you first said, you know, I come from a, from working with clients, I come from a belief system that all of us have a very early money story that makes an imprint upon us. And, you know, the money story can be a very positive one, it can be a very negative one, but it's one that's sort of at the core of all of us. And so as I've been working with clients, there have been instances where I've had to seek outside help, things that I can't provide help to, but I at least can recognize the issue. And often that is, you know, working with people like psychologists, marriage and family therapists. And... In my own personal life, I had had an issue. I had actually had a bike accident, which caused me to seek out a person who's a hypnotherapist. And in dealing with hypnotherapy and using it to treat some of my anxiety issues, it got me thinking, wow, this is, this is big. And it, it, when you are actually going through hypnotherapy, what you're learning to do is go back and re-blueprint a memory. Hmm. And I thought about that in context of the money stories of, you know, if, if, if someone grew up with a, with a negative money story, let, let's say growing up in a home where, you know, resources were scarce or the family struggled to survive, 
could you go back and, and re-blueprint that and then through hypnotherapy develop certain tools in order to address dealing with money on a go-forward basis? Hmm. And specifically in dealing with money in that when most of us have to come to a financial decision point, there is anxiety that kicks in. Mm -hmm. And that anxiety can be so overwhelming that our brain doesn't think correctly. And right. so there are certain tools in hypnotherapy that I learned in studying this, and I, I partner with a hypnotherapist um, in terms of working with clients on this, hmm. where by using certain tools like cross-patterning, you can start to work through the anxiety to take your mind into a clearer state where you can start to make money decisions that are yeah. more on solid footing. I've never heard of cross-patterning. Yeah, cross-patterning is actually, it's, it's an interesting technique. So, and I think, you know, I'm not going to do it any justice today because I'm, I'm not a hypnotherapist by practice. It's actually a very intense uh, studying. But, you know, what I would tell you with cross-patterning and your brain is a lot of times there are certain physical things that we can do to help clear our mind. Um, and what I would liken to it is maybe doing some patterning that looks a little bit like pat, uh, patty cakes when we're children. And by doing that, that movement stabilizes the mind and sort of clears it. Uh -huh. And it's very similar. I would sort of like it if you play tennis, mm -hmm. when you play tennis, you can't focus on anything but the tennis game that's in front of you. Your mind enters such a state where you sort of just relax and focus on the thing at hand. Mm -hmm. And I think cross-patterning is very similar to that. Okay. Yeah, so it's like touching a specific point on a f on your, your hand or something. Like, I, I think I have heard about it. It's like using these techniques to just kind of bring your mind back and to refocus you when you're starting to go off and, and run away with the squirrels. Right, because I think what you're trying to do, whether it's hypnotherapy or speaking to a financial planner or an attorney, is you really want to focus on getting yourself in the best state of mind to make money decisions. Right. And I think what, right, because that's the hardest part is most of the time people are making money decisions from a state of stress. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the thing is that's where, you know, and I've been very privileged over the course of my career, you know, in working with people who have significant needs. Yeah. And I think that the one thing that I noticed from time and time again in working with wealthy people is they make a proactive decision not about, about addressing their finances, not in the moment they're trying to make a decision, but in sort of setting it up so it works through their entire life. And what yeah. I mean by that is they create a foundation of a system for them to work within. And by creating a system, whether it's working with a certain advisor, whether it's having a certain process, whether it's you know, making sure they earmark time on a regular basis to go through, through their, their financial issues, they're actually able to create a safe space for them to make decision making decisions mm -hmm. regarding finance. I need both hypnotherapy for all aspects of my life as well as systems. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think the thing that, you know, I tell most people is when you're dealing with your finances, it's going to be a mix of both good and bad experiences. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a normal financial life. And mm -hmm. what you have to do, and this is where I've looked at hypnotherapy to be beneficial, is you need to see yourself as the hero of your own financial 
financial journey. Yeah. And that's really important because sometimes I think we make ourselves the victims of our finances, right? Things that happen to us. I have bills happening. You know, I'm stressed about money. But the thing is, if you see yourself as this, this hero or heroine on a journey and you have to go through and, and handle all these different obstacles and surmount them, it becomes a very empowering sort of approach to money. Mm -hmm. much more so than letting things happen to you. Right. And I always tell people it's good to have sometimes to have bad things happen to you financially. And, and, and people look at me like I'm crazy. But if you think back, you know, to nine years ago and the Madoff crisis, and if you listen to the people who he had invested the money from, they all talked about the same thing. He was a magic man. He was able to always have great returns. Mm -hmm. Well, that to me is a warning sign that something wasn't quite right because no one is perfect in the financial world. And so, you know, that's why I think if you think about yourself as this hero or heroine going through this obstacle course, you have a better way of reframing your mindset on how to approach your finances. Right. And I do think that when you do have struggles, it does light the fire under you to create those systems and to take that power back and to take the control back. And so it's really interesting, as you were talking, I was thinking about one of your blog articles that talked about Donald Sutherland and the choices that he made with his money that were based on short-term benefits versus thinking about it as a long-term life decision. Would you share that story with us? Because I really liked it. I'd love to. It, it's, a, it's a really interesting phenomenon. But let me start with, with the Donald Sutherland part of this. So all of us know Don, Donald Sutherland. He's an amazing actor. And, you know, in the mid-1970s, he was 40 years old. And I was actually floored when I realized that was, was his age in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And he was seen as a very respectable actor, a box office draw. And John Landis was putting together a movie called National Lampoon's Animal House. <laughs> and usually when all of us think of that movie, we think of Belushi, right? Yeah. But he, Belushi wasn't seen as a strong enough box office draw. And they wanted someone to come in and bolster the star power of the movie. <laughs> and so Landis approached Sutherland and said, we'd love for you to be in this movie. We want you to play Professor Dave Jennings. And, you know, it'll give you access to this younger audience. And they started negotiating finances. And, and Sutherland said, I want $250,000. And, you know, that was way over the budget. And so Landis sort of came to him and said, okay, we're going to be creative here. I'm going to give you $20,000, but I'm going to give you 2% of the film's gross. And Sutherland basically said, no way. I want the money. I don't want any points. I just want the money. Mm -hmm. So they came up with an amount. I think it was closer to $30,000, $40,000 that he got paid for the film. Now, fast forward, right? Here we are 40, almost 40 years later. And I mean, who doesn't know Animal House, right? right. And it's been such a, a film, you know, iconic film, and it's made so much money. And if you, if you think about it, right, what would that 2% um, be on the back end? And so, you know, basically back a couple of years ago, Howard Stern had Donald Sutherland on, the, uh, uh, on his show, and he brought up this story. And it turns out uh, Animal House had made about $120 million. So the ultimate take would have been about $14 million. 
And you think about that and that's, that's unbelievable money. And, and you think, well, Sutherland must be kicking himself. And, and to his credit, right. We need to be kind to him in this story. You know, people didn't have DVD rentals back then. I mean, Blockbuster didn't exist. There weren't all these tie-ins. Right. And he basically told Stern he was okay with what happened, but the story illustrates something that happens to a lot of us. We make a decision in the moment to gratify ourselves as we are today. And he needed the money. He wanted the money financially. And so that's what he focused on. And what he didn't focus on is the Donald Sutherland 5, 10, 20, 40 years from when the movie was made and what the potential back end would have meant to the future Donald Sutherland. Mm -hmm. And this is a very, very common problem. So, I mean, if you think about it, right, Michelle, there's oftentimes when we take a new job and, you know, HR gives us the 401k paperwork and we're like, oh, you know, (laughs) right now I just can't afford this. I can't do this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, But I'll get it to it next year. Right. And then next year becomes the year after that and the year after that. And, and if you think about it, right, when you're in your 20s, that's when your financial situation is probably the easiest. It just keeps right. getting more complicated. Absolutely. Right? You know, it's funny that you bring this up and I have to jump in because it made me think about my very first job out of college. I got hired by this huge health insurance company back east and very traditional in there. It was like nine weeks of corporate training with the big boys network and all of this stuff. And they gave us this huge seminar. I think it was like two days worth of why it's important to open up your 401k and get started on your financial planning. And at the time, I was like 21, <laughs> maybe 22. Right, right. You're like financial and I was, planning. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, I'm so bored by this. Like, I really don't care. It's about living in the moment. You know, and I really was not interested. There were some people who were, and I remember it was like some guys, and I was like, you guys are crazy. We should just have fun. We're in our 20s, you know, and now I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. You know, that dollar I would have invested when I was 21. Right. Might have helped make me a millionaire by the time I was 50. Exactly. So I feel like it's, it's partially a generational thing too, unless it's kind of like stamped into you at a very early age, how important it is to plan for your future. You might just see it as something that you can worry about later. You know, it's, and it's hard, right? Because I think so many people come with the mindset that they have to hire people like me, right? To be financially successful. Mm -hmm. And the truth of the matter is most of us have the tools to do it for ourselves. So it's sort of interesting because the New York NYU Stern School of Business has done all this study on people's brains. And what they have found is that individuals who can connect with the idea of their future self really often do better with managing money or making financial decisions. Mm -hmm. So what I tell everybody, particularly, you know, and I have a lot of millennials working for me and millennials, as a side note, they do a good job with their money and I give them a lot of credit. But I make them think, okay, you're 25 today. Who are you going to be at 35, 45, 55? And in that case, if I was sitting there when you were 21 years old, I would have said, Michelle, the 40-year-old Michelle or the 50-year-old Michelle, can you think about her? Can you think about the things that she's going to need? I'd be like, no, she's going to be a grandma. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) 
But the thing is, if you had to actually think about it and think about the person you wanted to become, there's a good chance it might have made you think differently about yeah. it than if you just stayed in your 21-year-old self mm-hmm. thinking about money as it was today. Right. And so I really, you know, I think one of the things that, that really people should think about doing, and it's, it's something I do on January 1st every year, is write down two to four financial goals for yourself. And it sounds corny, right? Why am I going to write down, I want to fund my 401k with $18,000 this year, or I want to fund my IRA with $5,500 this year. But the truth of the matter is, you know, once you write something down, they have actually studied this and they've determined that people who write things down actually have a greater chance of achieving those goals. And I even use that thinking in my, in my practice because I follow up with my clients with a letter. Because that letter is one of us writing it down saying, okay, I got you to agree to these things in the meeting, (laughs) but guess what? I'm going to make sure there's some accountability here. Mm -hmm. We're going to go through this list and I'm going to push you forward. But, but you can do that for yourself. And if you write it down and you, you think about it, it usually means you'll have a greater chance of success. Yeah. That's fantastic. Now, what if you are, and I found this to be another interesting situation, what if you're someone who is more freelance, so to speak, or uh, travels quite a bit with your services, like you're a speaker, or you're an author who does all of these engagements, doing book signings all over the US, perhaps internationally as well. How do you deal with tax ramifications when you're working in multiple states or all over the place, maybe all over the world? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and it's a tough question um, because you know we we think of ourselves as living in a certain state. So you know, I live here in California, but you know, when you start to go into different states ar- around the United States and you start working there, right? And it, there is, you know, the states all believe that where you are working, they have a right to their income. Now, for most people, right? For a lot of people even if they go to New York for a day and they looked at their salary and divided it by the 242 workdays in the year, it wouldn't be enough to meet New York's filing requirement. But when you actually get to some of the more prominent people or wealthy people out there, there's a shift because a day in New York could mean you have a filing requirement. And I know he's been getting a lot of press recently, um, but Al Franken, Senator Al Franken, actually was an interesting case of this. And, and, and he talks about it in his book. But basically, before he ran for senator of Minnesota, he had been traveling around doing a book tour uh, as a comedian and had gone to 17 different states. And when he filed his tax return as a Minnesota domiciliary, he filed only in Minnesota. And he's a pretty prominent guy. And so when he goes to places like New York and California and Georgia to do these speaking engagements, this is all in the press. So these tax revenue boards, they're looking. They're looking to see who's coming to town. Yeah. And what basically they, you know, started to happen is, is he started to run for Senate. Some of these state revenue departments started to say, okay, wait, hold on. Oh, you were in our state. You got paid. Where's our share? Mm-hmm. Now, Poor Al. He's got daunting. some heavy ca- I know. Uh, karma. His karma's like. Here, here, here's, <laughs> here's the nice thing about Al. And, and I think this is, 
in in my personal opinion, uh, an example of his character. When he realized he made a mistake, he went back and fixed it. Mm-hmm. He went back and refiled in all 17 states. And, and I should explain to you that when you source to another state, so let's say Al had gone to New York, right? And he was paying around 7% to New York on speaking engagements there. New York, he doesn't get double taxed. New York gives a credit to Minnesota. So okay. he ends up in the same place. But it's all filing and administration was uh, done correctly. It's about a paper trail. It's about saying, I acknowledge that I was in your state, even though you're going to send the credit back to Minnesota. So there Correct. you go, and New you York. Have to just make sure you always pay the highest. So Minnesota uh-huh. is just slightly over 9%. So when he paid New York 7, he paid the Delta to 9 in Minnesota, and he was paid in in full. Got it. And what I thought was really interesting about the story right, is he had had tax accountants who were, who were advising him, and they made a mistake. But what Al did, which I thought, I give him a lot of credit for, was he knew he had to make a change. Somebody had put him in a precarious position, and so he fired his accountant and found a new firm who has done a much better job for him in managing his tax situation. Yeah. So I know that there's a lot of attention around the tax bill right now here in the U.S., what does it really mean for all of us? Yeah, I'm, you know, and I think if, if, to some degree, I'm going to say nobody knows what it means yet, really, because it's really only been a law f- for a couple of weeks. And so what, what everyone has to think about is there is a need here to go slow. And I say that because when anything, when somebody, something changes, right, the immediate reaction is to react and do something. And you saw that at the end of the year with the frenzy about prepaying real estate taxes and state taxes. I don't know if you saw that, but there was a lot of news coverage about that. Yeah. There was also a lot of coverage about self-employed people getting, you know, jacked. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. But, but the, you need to let the, ta- you know, the law, it's now a law. And now we need to let tax practitioners, CPAs, tax attorneys start to distill what this really truly means. Now, there's going to be a number of people in this country who are going to benefit from it. Basically, 85% of all filers will not itemize anymore. Think mm. about that. Mm. It's, it's unbelievable. So what's going to happen is for a number of people, because they're actually going to get a higher standard deduction than they had previously, plus the brackets dropped, they're going to see some benefit. For the group that are wealthy, in high tax states, and I would say even the group who's wealthy who are not in high tax states, it's going to be about creating strategy. And what I mean by that is previously there were certain levers you could pull to generate deductions. And you know, now the lever for real estate taxes is limited and state taxes are limited to $10,000. The mortgage interest deduction is still there, but for new mortgages, the, the largest mortgage amount you can deduct is 750000 And so the biggest lever you're going to have to pull is charity going forward. Mm. So what people have to start to think about, and you should do this, Michelle, as well, is figure out, okay, well, what, my, if I'm a married individual... I get a standard deduction now of Uh $24,000, right? So if you look and you see how much was I paying in property taxes and state taxes, what does that equal, right? And I can't take more than $10,000 of that, plus my mortgage interest, 
and, you know, plus my charity. And do those three numbers get me over the $24,000 standard deduction? And for some people, the answer is going to be no. But what they have to think about doing is maybe they start running their tax planning where in a year like 2018, they pre-fund some of their charity for future years by using a vehicle like a donor advised fund, which I'll come back to in a moment. Okay. And they accelerate deductions this year and they pre-plan the charity for the next three or four years. And then in 2019, 2020, and 2021, they elect the standard deduction, but now they have this bank for charity that they can give away. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the, what a concept of something called a donor advised fund. And I don't know, have you heard of a donor advised fund before? No, but my brain is on fire. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, oh. I try to make tax fun. <laughs> I'm so, sitting here and I'm like, oh shit, this is like stuff I'll have to consider in the future. You got to think about it, but you also have to think about it in context of your future self, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, what what are you going to do today to help the present day Michelle and the Michelle of the future? Right. I still have but, that 21 year old brain, Megan. <laughs> 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 That's okay. It means you might be willing to take a little more risk with your money yes, when, you, when, when you think about it as a 21-year-old. Indeed. indeed. 90% stocks, everyone. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so there's a tool out there I'm going to tell you as a tax planning tool that you know is available to all Americans, and that is something called a donor-advised fund. And it's a it's a word that really doesn't explain it very well, but what it is, is there's certain organizations across the country and, and the biggest, you know, any bank, any major brokerage firm has them and they are an umbrella 501c3 charity that houses accounts that people can open up with them that creates their own personal charity. Okay. That's and what great. it is, is the brokerage account. And Michelle, you could go in and let's say, let's say every year you give $1,000 to charity. Mm-hmm. And let's say you say, okay, I'm going to fund five years of my charity in one year because I'm going to try to get over that hurdle for the standard deduction for this year. You can fund the account. Once the money hits the account, you lose control over it, but you get the charitable deduction in the current year. And then you have the rest of your life to give the money away. Hmm. Okay. And one of the biggest proponents of this is uh, the quarterback from from the Steelers, Ben Roethlisberger. He has one of these donor advised funds, and he's done some really fun things with his. He actually um, he he loved animals, and he got that love of animals from his parents. And Mm. his parents also taught him to be respectful for our police and fire people out there. And so his donor advised fund does things to support local police and fire departments and the canine department. Oh, I love that. And it's, it's really special. And, and I think what most people don't realize is, you know, there's all these interesting tax, tax things out there that are not just for the wealthy. There are things that they can do yeah. where they can start to support the things that mean things to them, whether mm. it's dealing with, you know, your church, your alma mater, with, with people who are homeless. And what I often try to encourage people to do or think about is, Going back to that idea of your initial blueprint when, when you're a young child and you're learning about money, is you have this, these things called donor advised funds that you can use to teach your own child about money. Because you, know, you can say to your child, okay, let's, let's learn about a charity. What are you concerned with? Maybe it's the ASPCA. Maybe it's the Red Cross and helping the fires all over California. Maybe it's to help hurricane relief in Texas and Florida. 
but, but listening to the things that your child's concerned about and that your child wants to help. And then sort of say, okay, well, if we're going to try to help them, let's learn about the charity. Mm-hmm. And maybe you take your child down to the local, you know, humane society, or you take them to the local Red Cross and, and say, tell us about it. Charities are set up to educate donors. And if they have, you know, a little eight-year-old coming in saying, I think I want to make a donation, but I want to learn about your charity, they'd love that. Yeah. And they'll also love sharing your information with every other charity across the United States, and then your phone will blow up. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. This is true. But, you know, I think the thing is, it's one of those things where, you know, the teachable moment with a child to teach them that, you know, money can come and do good things for people. I know. I'm just joking, Megan. It's such a valid point. I know. I know. (laughs) And I can't tell you how to fix that problem. I really can't. (laughs) Block the numbers? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You look for the little box that says, no, please do not send me anything. (laughs) It's a challenge. It can be. Yeah. Because once they know that you are willing to be involved in that realm, then they all kind of come after you. And, And it has to be something that you're passionate about. In my personal opinion, I think, you know, anything that I'm involved with, it's because I I personally believe in it. And so that's why I love this idea of, you know, having a child figure out, well, what are you passionate about, you know, and have that kind of be become their blueprint as they grow. That's really cool. Yeah. And and the ability to make a donation from something. And there's something what I have asked most people who have donor advised funds, how they feel about it, right after they do it, is most of them feel that it was a really good thing, because it gives them a strategy for that part of their life. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's another thing to, to focus on is, you know, wealthy people are very good at creating a foundation and finding the right advisor, the right setup for them to work within. But the other thing that they do is they're not tactical people. They're very strategic and they want to think about things big picture because everything ties together, right? Your tax planning ties into your investment planning, which ties into your cash flow to charity. And so as you start to go through all the issues that you want to strategize on, to be able to make a firm commitment on charity on how you're going to handle it, it gives you a really good feeling that that part of your life is very settled. Mm-hmm. And also, this explains now to me why some of the wealthy people who I know personally are doing so much charity work. <laughs> I thought that it was just that they had lots of time on their hands. I was like, wow, they have nothing to do. They're bored. Um, but now I see that there's actually likely a strategy behind it. Well, and and if you think about it, right, people do charity for a few reasons, and they've actually studied this. One of the reasons they do it is they just want to do good in the world, right? And then you've got a group who want the tax deduction. And then you've got the group that they study really intensely, which is the group who it's it's a very – um, it's an ego process, mm. um, you know, to, to get your name on the building or to, to go right. through that, that specialness. Right. And charities get it because if you're a certain donor of a certain level, they'll invite you to, to events and, and mm. projects and come to this and to that. And it's really a very, uh, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's an interesting side effect of charity is what motivates people. Right. I wonder how many accounts and Oprah I, has. I would expect someone like an Oprah to have a foundation, you know, and and I think that that brings up a a unique thing, right? Because if you go back, right, to the turn of the 20th century and you look at two of our probably most important presidents for the first 50 years of the country, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and FDR, both of them interestingly came from money and they didn't go into a career of, 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 
making more money, what they both ended up feeling was because of the money, they needed to to give back by running for public office and helping create a greater society. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting today is you think about the people who are very wealthy and powerful in the United States today. And what you find is they are not running for office. Um, What they are doing is they are using charity to create the impact. So the same impact that FDR and Teddy were trying to do 100 years ago, they're doing it today through foundations. And you see it through the Zuckerberg Chan Foundation, people like Oprah, the Gates Foundation. All of those things are, are really moving things forward in, in, in a political way, but they're doing it through charity. And that's what makes it a very unique time in the charitable world. Yeah. I bet Oprah does have a foundation. She probably does. I don't know who handles her taxes, but I'm sure they're very busy. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, she talking about, you know, certain women out there who I think are important to think about when you're thinking about finances. You know, one of my favorite sort of wealth stories out there is Nora Ephron. And, you know, she was a great writer, a great director, um, just a really fascinating woman who passed away a few years ago. But mm-hmm. but one of my uh, favorite stories about Harry met Sally, her, right? When Harry met yes. Sally and Sleepless Harry in Seattle. Sally. And Julia and Julie or Julie and Julia. And mm. yeah, she just yeah. made great films. And, and you think about that and you're like, gosh, she just had it all together. And usually, you know, stories of celebrities, well-known people, it's always pulling away the layers of the onion and it turns out they didn't have it together. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but her story is unique because she was so organized that when she died, they found a file in her office. Um, and the file was her funeral plans. And it wasn't like, okay, I, you know, I want to be buried at this church and that's it. She had planned everything down to the minute. She had organized who was going to speak and for how long. She had the program organized. She had all her favorite recipes in the program. Uh, wow. She had named her funeral memorial service a gathering for Nora. And, you know, one of the guests even said, we don't know. Do we treat this like a cocktail party or what? <laughs> and, and But people said this was so her because she was so organized and engaged. And, and mm. I listened to the story and I'm like, I wish I could be like her. I mean, she's just so inspirational beyond these great movies that she helped make. Yeah. Well, she was um, thinking about her and, future in the afterlife. So. <laughs> exactly. She, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know whose funeral I would have liked to have been uh, invited to was Alexander McQueen's. And mm. he's another one. I don't know if you remember this a few years ago when he passed away. They had his memorial service at, you know, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And all of these, you know, chic women show up in his designs. And it was mm. like a it was like a living fashion show in homage to him. And, you know, you think about this and, and I talk to clients about this a lot because, you know, we all have ideas of what we want to have happen to us when we pass. Who do we want at our funeral? Who do we want to speak? Mm-hmm. But yet we never write them down. Yeah. We never think about putting it, you know, pen to paper or or telling someone they want this elaborate sort of ritual at the end. And ritual is so important and well. And is that something that that your firm would help with, with like death planning? Yeah. So when I work with clients, you know, it's a a pretty intense engagement because we handle everything for the client, soup to nuts. Um, You know, because my goal with clients is I want people to feel safe. Okay. And I think feeling safe, particularly about money, is, is a really, it's a place that most people aspire to be at. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, our goal is to make sure people are handled completely. And so they're, you know, in working with people on their funeral plans, 
it's it's about forcing those discussions, right? What do you want to have happen? Um, you know, how do you do you want a funeral? And and it's sort of interesting because um, when you start to do these decisions, and a lot of times you do it through a, a, a document called a healthcare directive, and then you can also have an accompanying document that's not legally binding called a, a letter to the trustee or a letter to the executor. You know, people, what I often find is in married couples, one, one member of the couple sort of drives the vision a bit more, right. um, which is, you know, okay, I, I, it's a little bit of Harry Met Sally. I'll have what she's having. Um, <laughs> you know, so if, 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 if you're going to go for cremation, I'm in too. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's sort of interesting in, in getting people to talk about it, but it's, it's forcing the discussion. And I think it's, it sounds silly, but what most people don't do, and I do find high net worth people do because we, we force them to do it and then they love it because it makes them feel good, mm-hmm. is we force them to have certain discussions about funeral planning, about death planning, um, about, and, and this sounds odd, but how would you manage your finances if you are incapacitated, like with Alzheimer's or dementia, right. you know, how, how do you want to handle things like that? And these are, these are awkward conversations. Yeah. Well, it's not though. Are... Cause like, think about Prince. He knew he had health issues. He was on a lot of meds and he also had a very crazy lifestyle. And then, you know, what happened with all of his money? There was all these crazy relatives coming out of the woodwork and it was just like, what's going on with his estate? Right, right. But you know what? First of all, Prince didn't like ownership. Um, If you do any research into Prince, he had certain theories on ownership that he felt very strongly about. Um, I actually heard an interview with Sheryl Crow where he had given her a hard time about American Express sponsoring a a charity concert she was doing. Um, You know, but if you think about it, right, you would think someone like Prince would be in the right place. But I'll give you another name of someone who passed away without an estate plan, and it's going to floor you. Abraham Lincoln. Mm. The man was an attorney. And, you know, first of all, he's an amazing story of wealth. If, if you ever get a chance, I advocate to anyone, go out to Springfield, Illinois, go to the Lincoln Museum and Library. But before you go there, go outside of town to um, New Salem. And in 10 years, he went from a log cabin to having one of the, to being an upper, upper middle class uh, attorney in Springfield. But he had no estate plan. And this was someone who, who I think had a very foreboding sense of death, but he never put pen to paper. Um, you know, and, and, and these stories of people like Prince, of Lincoln, you know, uh, people like Jimi Hendrix, you know, he died yeah. without a will. I mean, he was 27 yeah. years old. His dad inherited the estate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, what went on afterwards, there was disinheriting people. It was very, very complex. And oh, I think money makes people most- turn ugly. And death and money, you know, it's just so gross. I mean, I saw when my dad passed away, there was just a lot of like, you know, arguments about property and arguments about who's getting this and who's getting that. And I'm just like, really? I can see the importance of having all of that sussed out in advance. Yeah. And I think it goes to having your documents in order and having a ritual process. And, you know, I tell people all the time, write letters write letters to your family members. I actually, um, you know, I have family friends who, when their father passed, they found a letter he had written the family and it gave them such closure. And I think people don't realize that in financial planning and tax planning, these things, this warm and fuzzy stuff, the the emotional stuff is really important to tie in with your documents Mm -hmm. because it, it helps people process 
some of the legal and financial matters a little bit easier. Because yeah. to your point, death and money, they're just a bad combo. Yeah. And it goes back to to what you started at the very top of our conversation with today about how there's this big psychological piece to handling money. And so, you know, you have to find that warm and fuzzy aspect of it, for sure, in order for everyone to stay happy in your family. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I'll give you the third thing I would tell you with, with high net worth people that they do very well is they find someone who they can work with, who is, they find usually one person because you need a singular voice and it's finding someone who's not afraid to challenge you, mm -hmm. to hold up that mirror and say, Hey, Michelle, what are you doing? You know, you're self-employed. Where's your SEP IRA? Why are you not funding it? Right. Yeah. You would not want to work with me, Megan. <laughs> oh, we'd have so much fun. I, look, no, the you key would hate is, me. right? <laughs> <laughs> I think what would be key, right, is understanding what motivates you. And I think you are a powerful woman. And I think to be a powerful woman, having your financial house in order is really key. Mm -hmm. And I think women are better at money. We're the nesters. You know, I mean, you have any friends who are pregnant, they're always getting the baby's room ready. That's because we're nesters. Yeah. And so we're good at understanding money and what our risk tolerance is and what we're yeah. willing to do. And we're the biggest purchasers as well. You know, we're the ones who exactly. typically make the purchasing decisions for a family at the end of the day. The guy might think Except, he yeah. is, <laughs> but, but anyway, I love all of these tips. Any final thoughts for the folks out there listening about tax planning, um, the tax season coming up, wealth management, any other thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that the industry wants to help as much as possible, the tax industry. And what I find is people aren't, you know, as they start to get their W-2s, that's when they really start thinking about taxes. And, mm. and, and it's too late. So what I would encourage anyone who really wants to get in control of their finances is find a really good tax person and meet with them after April 15th of this year to start talking about your 2018 tax planning. What could yeah. you be doing? Because it's during the year that you can actually really move the needle mm. and, and, you know, do the things that you should be doing. Yeah. And I really just, you know, feel that everyone should feel very positive about money. Most of the wealthy people I work with are optimists about money. They've always felt they're going to have it and they always feel they're going to keep it. Mm -hmm. And so you, everyone needs to think from a very positive yeah. mindset. Yeah. And also hope that the one person that is your spokesperson for your financial health is not the same person who handled Billy Joel's money. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Vet the people you're going to have touch your money because yeah. you don't know. And there are resources out there. Go on broker check. Check on people being in the AICPA. You know, go look at the Bar Association. They can give you good guidance on the people out there. Yeah. Um, and you know what? The last thing I'll say about wealthy people is they ask a lot of questions and people get nervous talking to financial people. Don't be. The thing that most people don't do is they don't ask the right question. Mm -hmm. Huge. Huge. Don't be afraid, people. Take control of your money. You know, it's important. Exactly. Megan, it's been such a pleasure to have you on here. And I appreciate you taking time to make such a tough topic relatable and, you know, to kind of like give people listening the power back so that they're not so scared of the upcoming tax season or not so scared of, of taking control of their money. Exactly. And Michelle, I really enjoyed speaking with you. And I am up for the challenge. If you ever, ever want anyone to come in and help you out, I'd <laughs> love to, to be part of it. You will but, hear from um, me. It'll be a little while. 
smile, though. <laughs> Everybody out there listening, right. please, please go to Megan's blog website. It's got such great stories on there. Thewealthintersection.com. Incidentally, you can find her online on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Um, you're on Twitter, too, right, Megan? I am at Wealth Intersect. Yep, a Wealth Intersect. And then also, of course, the main website, checkersfinancial.com. Um, great episode. Thank you again, Megan. Thank you, Michelle. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits? Email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.